You may be seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 13 and read down to the middle of verse 20. There's been a theme going on recently. You've probably noticed we're reading really long passages of Scripture um, so that we're not in Exodus for 15 years. So, uh, so, so I want to encourage you, track along with us and remind you what we've seen in the last few weeks is that God has began to act. He's begun to keep His promises to Moses and to Israel. He's begun to attack His enemy, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians with plague. So let's read Exodus 9, starting in verse 13, with the seventh plague of hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never seen, been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 
But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as he, the Lord, had spoken through Moses. Chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your house. Houses and the houses of your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go. Serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was dark and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people 
of Israel go. When God sends the storm of hail upon the Egyptians, it's unlike anything that they have ever seen. It decimates everything that is uncovered, all the beasts, all the plants, even men and women who do not heed God's warning. It leaves only the wheat and emmer that had not yet come in. Verse 31 and 32 tells us that the flax and the barley are struck, but that the wheat has not come in yet, which informs us that this happened early in the Egyptian calendar year, the only time that that's possible. This also explains what was left for the locusts to destroy and devour when they came shortly after this storm. All throughout the Bible, starting here and throughout the prophets, locusts are used as imagery of destruction because of the collective destructive power that they possess, literally eating up all vegetation that exists. These plagues are progressively getting worse. God is once again flexing and showing His power over the many Egyptian gods that they trusted in. The sea's been turned to blood. Frogs and gnats have come upon them. Their livestock have had a pestilence come upon them. Now there are uh, there are hailstorms, locust swarms. We've had boils and and sores all over them. They're progressively getting worse. At first, the magicians were able to imitate these plagues, but not for long. They soon realized they were outside of their pay grade. And then God began to make a distinction between his enemies, Egypt, and his people, Israel. So that the people of Israel who dwelled in the land of Goshen are living life. They have sunny skies, healthy cattle, and abounding crops while Egypt all around them is falling apart and being destroyed. God is communicating to Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel, I will be with my people, I will keep my promises, but if you refuse to surrender and submit, I will be against you. And in these plagues this morning, Pharaoh is told that he and his household will begin to be afflicted in a new way. Remember, Pharaoh considered himself to be divine. So these attacks that God is giving on Egypt, they're not only aimed at the Egyptian gods of the sky and the storm, as we've pointed out week after week walking through the plagues. These attacks are also aimed at the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, who is pretending to be a deity and to possess supernatural power. With these plagues getting worse, with the little that's in Egypt now being destroyed... And with the plague soon ending in the next few weeks, it's time for us to answer the question, why? Why is God judging his enemies, the Egyptians, so harshly? And the answer to that question is found in our text and all throughout the book of Exodus. And this is our first point this morning. All of God's purposes are for God's own glory. All of God's purposes, all, are for God's own glory. 
The people who picked the songs this week didn't know that was the first point. But the song we just sang says, it's not about us, it's about you. And for whose glory? Your glory. That is all over the book of Exodus. And I want to show you where. So just, just listen to these references. In Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush, God tells Moses that he will save Israel, but that Pharaoh will not let them go unless he is forced by a mighty hand. God said in Exodus chapter 4 to Moses that he would actually harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not obey Moses and Aaron's command to let Israel go. And then in chapter 5, exactly what God had told Moses would happen is what happens. Pharaoh refuses to obey and he asks, Who is Yahweh, who is the Lord, that I should obey him? God quickly begins to act to answer that question, showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians and even the people of Israel who in fact the Lord is and what he is capable of. He tells Moses in chapter 6 and 7 that with a strong hand I will send Israel out of Egypt. And again he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not relent. Now why? Why will God harden Pharaoh's heart so he doesn't just say after the first plague, you know what, y'all go. That was a pretty impressive thing, the Nile River. We like it to be water, not blood. Why harden his heart so that he won't let them go? This is why. God says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Before turning the Nile River to blood in chapter 7, God says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. In chapter 8, when Moses sends the frogs away, it happens so you may know there is none like the Lord. In chapter 8, I'm sorry, in chapter 8 later, Pharaoh is told that God will make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. In chapter 9, Pharaoh is told that the plagues will afflict him now. Why? That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God tells Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, I could have easily already destroyed you. With a snap of a finger, I could have decimated and destroyed all of my enemies. But he says, for this purpose I've raised you up, Pharaoh. Why? To show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Moses says in our text this morning, he will pray for the hail to leave in chapter 9. Why? That you may know that all the earth is the Lord's. In chapter 10, he, uh, God says that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? That I may show these signs and that you may tell your children and grandchildren for generation after generation how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Why? That they may know that I am the Lord. In the plague of darkness next week in chapter 11, God says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why? That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then after Pharaoh lets Israel go, after the Passover... 
They're set free. God comes to Moses in chapter 14 and says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart again. He will come after them. Why? Because I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all of his hosts, over all the Egyptians. They will know that I am the Lord. God says later in chapter 14, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When? When I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen, they will know who God is. And then he says this, after God does what he says he's going to do, after God drowns his enemies who refuse to submit in the Red Sea. In chapter 14, verse 31, God says, or Moses records for us, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Why read all those verses from Exodus 3 to Exodus 14, from the burning bush to the crossing of the Red Sea? Because all of those verses tell us the same thing over and over and over and over. It ha- it's said so often it's easy for us to miss it as we're trying to focus in on what is this plague and what does this mean and what is God doing. Why read all those verses? Because they all say the same thing. That God does all that he does for his own glory. He saves his people, Israel, to show that he is a promise-keeping, merciful, forgiving, gracious, liberating God. Why? So he will be glorified by his people. He hardens Pharaoh's heart and stands opposed to his enemies to display his power to the nations through the plagues. Why? So that he will get the glory. God does this so that Israel will fear him and will teach their families for generation after generation after generation to do the same. God does these things so that his enemies, Egypt, will know who he is and will fear his name. He does this so the surrounding nations who will hear for centuries and millennia of what the God of Israel has done will know that the God of the Hebrews is not to be trifled with. All that God does in Exodus and throughout all of history is to make His name great, to make His character be displayed among the nations because God is committed to His own glory. That's why verse after verse after verse in Exodus and all throughout your Bible tells us God does what he does that you will know I am the Lord. Exodus is not primarily a story about Egypt and Israel about plagues and Passovers and Red Seas, about manna and laws and tabernacles. But instead, Exodus and all the Bible is a story about God being glorified and God being honored as supreme. And if we're honest, we are often so focused on ourselves 
and on our story and on our plans that the idea that God is more concerned and more committed to himself and to his glory and to his reputation than he is to us can rub us the wrong way, can't it? Some of us hear that God is so committed to his glory like this and we think, well, that makes God sound selfish. That makes God sound egotistical. It seems like God must not have been taught by his mom and dad like I was that the world doesn't revolve around him. But friends, what is true of you and me is not true of God. When we make much of ourselves, when we pat ourselves on the back, when we try to display how awesome we are, when we try to garner man's applause and approval, we are being egotistical. We are being self-serving. Why? Because we are mere creatures who are imperfect and who deserve no glory. There are greater, more beautiful, more powerful, more majestic things in creation that make us and our looks and our skills and our intellect and our character and our power seem insignificant and worthy of no adoration. But not so with God. Not so with God. God is the greatest good. God truly is worthy of adoration. There is nothing that is as great or as powerful or as constant or as beautiful as God. He is the standard. He is the center. He's the greatest good. He's the true treasure. Everything else pales in comparison to Him. And because of that fact, it is right and it is good and it is pure and it is just to give him all praise, honor, and glory. And if God were more committed to anything other than his own glory, it would be a deficiency in God because he would be committed to something that is not as high and powerful and as mighty as himself. It is good that God is for God, first and foremost. He is a God who is worthy of all praise. And if that chafes on us the wrong way, the problem is with us and not God. Because he's God, and we're not. Exodus shows us that God is glorified in all things. Because all things display his glory in one way or another. God is glorified in saving his people because it displays the undeserved grace that he shows to so many. But God is also glorified in judging his enemies, the Egyptians, because it displays that he is a righteous and good and just God who will stand opposed to evil. God will be glorified, friends, in both heaven and in hell because his perfect character and his infinite worth as a gracious and a just God will be displayed in both salvation and in judgment. And what that means is this. The person who humbly submits to God by faith will glorify God. But so also will the hard-hearted rebel who refuses to submit and unknowingly displays God's righteous character in doing what is right and standing opposed to evil. 
God's ultimate aim in creating, sustaining, saving, judging, and accomplishing his plans is always, first and foremost, his glory. And friends, when we realize that, when we get in our tiny little minds how awesome and majestic and powerful and good and worthy and glorious God is. It changes us. It changes how we think. It changes what we value. When we see how glorious He is and how committed He is to His own glory, it will give us a much bigger view of God and it will give us a much smaller view of ourselves. I would argue that this morning if you hear that God is more committed to his glory than anything else and you think, well, I don't know if I like that, that you have too big of a view of yourself and a far too small vision of God. Friends, God doesn't want your preacher and your Sunday school teacher and the books you read to be about you. He doesn't want them to be about tickling your ears and making you feel good and special. He wants you to get He wants us to get you to take your eyes off yourself and look at him. Because when you do that, it changes you. When we get that vision of who God is in his bigness and grandeur, it will lead us to see how small we really are. It will help us to remember that we are, friends, a small part in God's big story. He is not a small part in our big story. It will remind us that we, friends, should not be the kind of people who try to put God in a box and dictate to God what he is and isn't allowed to do, who he can and cannot be. He is God, and we are not. Reminds us again and again that he and not we are God. And friends, that is a good thing. God does all that he does for his own glory. Friends, you don't need marriage tips. You don't need Bible reading strategies. You don't need to be able to work out this and that thorny theological Issue. That is not first and foremost what you need as a believer. You need a vision of the holiness and majesty and glory of God. Because when you have that, all those other things will work themselves out. God does all he does for his glory. But there's another thing we see in our text. We see, secondly, a deeper look at the diagram of a hard heart. Last week... We saw that Pharaoh began a pattern. A pattern of making promises to God in order to get relief, but with no intention of keeping them. Pharaoh begins a pattern of saying, God, this situation stinks. I don't like it. I want you to act. I promise you I'll do this if you do this. But he's really just using God. He has no intention of keeping those Promises. We saw last week that instead of surrendering to God and obeying God, he thought that partial obedience would work. But partial obedience, there's a word for it, it's called disobedience. 
We saw that even when the evidence was overwhelming that God was real and God was in charge, that Pharaoh still rebelled against God and chose to be his own king. And this week we see more of the same. God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 17, Pharaoh, you're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Before the plague of locusts in chapter 10, verse 3, God asked Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God says to Pharaoh, you're doing this because you're proud. You're doing this because you're exalting yourself and your purposes and your kingdom and your wants more than me. You need to humble yourself. God is teaching Pharaoh that the root of his hard heart is selfish pride and a desire to make his own rules. I'll obey this part of God's word, but not this part. I'll submit to this part, but I'll ignore this part. That's what Pharaoh's doing. Friends, we do the same thing. When we value our independence more than God, then we will pridefully ignore his commands while we selfishly live for our own kingdom. When we refuse to submit ourselves to God's word, we will exalt ourselves above him. We will live for our own glory and not his. We will live as enemies of God, competing with God for glory. We will give the time, talent, and treasure that God has given to us to make much of him for ourselves and not for God. We will take credit for things that we think we have done when in fact it's God who's empowered us to do them. We will be proud. And we will not humble ourselves before the God of all glory and all might. This is what Pharaoh's doing here. And according to God, it's the root of all hard-heartedness that still exists today. Many of Pharaoh's servants hear that the storm is coming and what do they do? They rush off to hide their livestock from the coming storm. But what's Pharaoh do? He proudly ignores God's warning. When God's word warns of coming judgment, Pharaoh hard-heartedly ignores it, thinking there will always be time later to get right with God, thinking surely God won't actually judge in this way. The same thing happens today. Many will hear the call of the gospel to repent and believe and submit Christ. They'll hear it again and again and again and again, but the cost of following Jesus is considered too high, so they stop their ears, they ignore God's warnings, they're blinded by their sin, they're deaf to God's truth. Many will even today mock the message and the messenger of a holy God who will one day judge, thinking them false words of fear-mongering. I don't need anyone to tell me God's going to judge me. I don't need anybody to tell me how to live. But friends, if the Bible's true, a day is coming where God will be mocked no more. A day is coming when God's promised judgment will in fact come. And friends, on that day, all who have refused to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus, all who thought that they knew better than God, all that used their life for themselves instead of for God's glory, will have their mocking mouths shut and will face what they truly and we all deserve. 
That's hard, but it's true. When this plague comes and Pharaoh desires relief, what does he do? He begins to say right-sounding words. In chapter 9, verse 27, what does he say? This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Chapter 10, he says something similar. He says right-sounding words. Friends, God requires more than right-sounding words. Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. Meaning, all the other disobedience that I've done, that hasn't been that big of a deal. But this time I've sinned. Friends, when we say things like, well, sure, I'm not perfect, nobody is. But we pretend that we're pretty good most of the time. We have far too high a view of ourselves. And we don't truly recognize our desperate need for salvation. Friends, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that our best works of righteousness, the things that you go and do to brag to others, look at how I serve God, the best works of our righteousness are filthy rags before a holy God whose standard is perfect holiness. Friends, the Bible says that all that we do apart from faith is sin. The Bible says that our idols, our hearts are consumed with idols. That we constantly are worshiping God replacements, considering them to be far more important and valuable to us than the true God. We have fallen far short of God's glory, and it's not like we're close. So to say, well, sure, I'm not perfect, is far short of understanding our wretchedness. Pharaoh seems here to confess his sin. But it's a deficient confession because it doesn't lead to repentance. Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry to God. Repentance includes confessing our sin to God, admitting that He's right and we're wrong, but it involves far more than that. True repentance begins there, but it also involves a commitment to change no matter the cost. When you say, I'm sorry, God, again and again and again and again, when you find yourself under conviction, but then you go right back to the same thing again and again, taking no steps to change, then you're showing that no true repentance happened. 2 Corinthians 7 gives us categories for godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when you feel bad for getting caught. Worldly sorrow is when you don't like the consequences of your sin. Worldly sorrow is when you want relief or forgiveness, but you're not truly concerned with your sin offending the holy king and God of righteousness. Ungodly or worldly sorrow is when you're unwilling to make any life changes to pursue holiness. Friends, you can cry all you want. You can walk the aisle. You can repent in sackcloth and ashes. You can share your sin with your friends. You can have an emotional response. But hear me. If you do all of those things, even if you genuinely feel bad, but you're not willing to do anything about it, you're not willing to say no to the sin. You're not willing to involve other people in holding you accountable. You're not willing to stop doing the things that Jesus had to die for. Then no true repentance happened. 
True repentance comes when we feel the gravity of God's holiness and the heinousness of our sin so that we come to an end of ourselves and are willing to do whatever it takes, whatever the cost, to live under God's rule and to bring glory to His name. Pharaoh makes two half-hearted confessions here. Pharaoh says twice in our text that he feels sorry because he doesn't like the consequences of his sin. He feels conviction. He has an emotional response. He wants relief. But what happens when the pain goes away? I don't need God anymore. I'll keep my slaves. That's why Moses says, Pharaoh, I'll pray for your relief, but I know you don't fear the Lord. That sounds like kind of a harsh, judgmental thing to do, to say. But why does he say it? Because he has seen Pharaoh and how he operates. When you see someone say that they care about God over and over and over and over again, when around the right people, but they never do anything about it. They never show any real commitment to change. They don't show any true hunger for God, any desire to live for His glory, any desire to sacrifice for Him, any desire to put Him at the center of your life. Then you begin to realize, sadly, that their heart is hard against God. Exodus teaches us that someone who has a hard heart hates the consequences of sin, but does not hate the offensiveness of their sin against God. Someone whose heart is hard knows that they are not perfect, but they think that they are far better than they truly are. Someone who has a hard heart against God, ignore God's word and God's warnings regularly. Someone with a hard heart might show superficial signs of repentance, but it's not real and it never lasts. People whose hearts are hard against God are unwilling to obey God. Any efforts that they make at obedience are partial, trying to make deals with God, trying to lower His standards. And all of this flows from exalting themselves above God in pride, seeking independence from God, and seeking to rule their own life as king, just like the original rebel Satan who cast mankind into sin in the first place. Friends, you will glorify God one way or another. You will bow the knee to Christ one way or another. A day is coming when Christ will be king and every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is truly Lord. And your life will either glorify God by highlighting His grace in saving you, or your life will glorify God by magnifying His justice in judging you. A day is coming when all will bow before Christ on bended knee, and that 
submissive posture will either be willingly offered in humility as a believer or it will be punishably forced as your pride is finally overcome and you have no choice but to admit he is God and I am not. God will get the glory. Why? Because he is God. And we must choose how we will glorify him. It's not a matter of if we will glorify him. It's a matter of how we will glorify him. And if you hear about Pharaoh's hard heart and your first instinct is to begin to question God's character and say, why would God do that? Instead of first asking the question, is it possible my heart is hard? Then I would argue that you need to get your priorities straight. Because friends, if you see patterns of a hard heart in your life, if you see that you lack true repentance, grieving over your sin, because you see the majesty and the gravity and the holiness of God, if you see a lack of true submission to God, where you're obey this but not obey this, trying to make deals with God, living in unrepentant sin and not feeling conviction, if those things are true of you, if you see that you're living your life for yourself and not for God, and you fear that one day you will face the judgment that Pharaoh and the Egyptians faced, then I implore you this morning, put your lunch plans on pause and desperately cry out to God. Truly repent. Look at the Savior Jesus. He alone obeyed God's demands. He alone obeyed God's demands perfectly in a way that you and I and Israel and Egypt never could do. He faced the holy judgment of God in my place as my substitute so I don't have to. His life, His death, His resurrection are our only hope. But we must repent and we must believe or we will have no hope. And we will face God's judgment. Will you choose Him today? Will you submit to Him today? I encourage you, do business with God right now as we close. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. God, You are the sovereign Lord of the universe. There is nothing outside of Your control. God, my prayer right now for my life and for the lives of our people is that you will help us to live for and submit to you. God, if you are speaking to someone who knows that they're not right with you, I pray that they'll respond. I pray that they will humbly respond to you, submit to you, surrender their lives to you, repent before you, believe in what Christ has done. God, help them to not put it off anymore. Help them to respond 
to you. God, we pray right now. My prayer is that if anyone sees sin in their life that they truly need to repent of, God, that they will do business for you. Even now, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that you will move and you will work. God, help us to respond to you. Help us not to let this moment pass without praying to you and asking you, God, to speak to us and meet us where we are. God, you are good and you are worthy. God, as this music plays, as we stay in our seats, I pray that you'll just be with us and help us to do business with you because you are God and you are worthy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.